Yeah, good morning, everyone. Thank you for that, Betsy. That was a long reading, and you did well with a lot of uh, names and difficult things. So, long reading might mean shorter sermon. <laughs> we'll go for that. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm Etienne, and so welcome from me to, to, um, to church. If you're visiting with us, great to have you. I sat in the back with, with the family today, and I reckon the the clue is if, uh, if you come to church on a Sunday, get here a bit early and sit to the front. It's much more peaceful up here than <laughs> in the back. <laughs> great to have you. Great that we're busy. Great that we're full. We love it. And if you're visiting again, good to have you. Um, you are stepping in, if you're with us for the first time today, into a, a series that we're preaching through the life of a man called Joseph. Um, We've been to the place where we read that he was really mistreated by his brothers. He was sold as a slave. He went to Egypt. He spent some time in prison, in, well, first some time in, in, in a household where he worked as a slave. He did very well, unfairly sent to prison, spent time in prison, and we are where we are today in this chapter. I'll give you three statements that I'm willing to bet across the three of them all of us are wrestling with at least one of them, okay? There are some of you here this morning, some of us, who are afraid. I'm afraid. I'm afraid of something. I'm afraid of someone, some people, a situation that I'm facing, I'm, I'm afraid. There's great fear. Some of us who wrestle with this statement, I, I can't be bothered. What's the point anyway? Nothing changes and what will happen will happen anyway. What's the, what's the point? Why bother with anything? Especially what God wants me to do, right? Number three, I'm sucked in. I, I'm struggling to resist. I'm struggling to say no to whatever it is that you struggle with, that you say, I know I need to get out of this. It's trying to change me and make me into someone who I don't want to be and shouldn't be, but I, but I can't. I'm tempted. I, I, I struggle, right? These are three, three states of mind that we occupy often, usually in our lives. I'm afraid. I can't be bothered. I'm, I'm really tempted. I, I struggle to resist. Those are the three things that I, I suggest to you you're going to see today in this chapter we're going to learn some stuff about, about Joseph. We're going to look at him again, for the most part today, as one of the characters in this story. And, um, yes, I'm afraid. I'm apathetic. I can't be bothered. And I'm really tempted. They're the three things. Okay, let's go. Charles Colson 
who was a political advisor, he's that dude there, to the Richard Nixon administration uh, in the US. Um, if you've been around long enough and listened at the time, uh, you know, Nixon was the Watergate scandal guy and Charles Colson was involved in all of that. Um, Side note, his story, he became a Christian at some stage, a remarkable conversion for this guy. I think it's actually during his, his time, I think he spent home in prison. He did, didn't he? After, after the Watergate scandal, and, and, and Jesus found him there. <laughs> Changed his life around. I think he started the prison ministry fellowship. That's who he is. He writes about his time in, the, in, in, in political office. And he, at some part in some of his writings, he told this story. He says... Often, what they would have as a political administration, they'd get people who are hostile to the government, right? Enemies of the government, people who are adversaries, and it was his job to often pacify these people as they come to the White House to meet with the political officials, uh, and, and, and his job was to sort of soften them. So what he would do is he'd take them on a tour, basically, you know, they'd be hosting these folk in the executive dining rooms of the West Wing. He would lead them past saluting guards on long, long corridors lined with imposing pictures of presidents in action. Uh, they might even have a, a lunch with them with the mahogany-lined walls and red-jacketed Navy stewards. And if it was a, an adversary that was really staunch, they might even be taken upstairs. Uh, into the Oval Office. He said they would be that prepared that if it was really a big deal, they would often ensure that if the President was there, there'd be this impromptu thing where the President would greet them and hand them uh, a pair of you know, gold-plated cufflinks with the presidential seal on it, all sincerely. And here's what Colson summarised, how Colson summarised these visits. Invariably, after all this, the lions of the waiting room became the lambs of the Oval Office. I think he said elsewhere, the worst ones were the religious leaders, actually, who were pacified. Here's the question. Our little Joseph... It's taken out of prison. Capera remembers that there's a man who can interpret dreams. <laughs> and he gets brought up out of that prison. He gets put into the presence of the most powerful man on planet Earth at the time. Okay, Egypt at the time is the epicenter of human civilization. Pharaoh is not just an elected human being. He is understood and perceived as, as a god. He is worshipped. Right? This, is the, this is the aura into which Joseph is led. And he has every reason to be afraid, to be terribly afraid. particularly and perhaps more so because of how he addresses Pharaoh. He's got some nerve. Here's what he says. 
after Pharaoh tells him his dreams? Joseph's response is, I can't tell you what your dreams mean. God will give Pharaoh a good answer. Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. These are selected verses from the passage Betsy read. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. It is as I've said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. That the dream was sent twice to Pharaoh shows that what will happen is planned by God and God will make it happen soon. Pharaoh, the future of Egypt does not depend on you. You do not get to decide it. In fact, you are marginal to the future of your kingdom. You cannot cause a future nor resist the future that the real God is going to bring. You've got to hand it to Joseph. He could have spun that any other way, you know. Um, this is my chance to get into the good books of this guy. I can tell him what his dreams mean. He can think a lot of me. Joseph goes the other way. He says, no, no, no. Um, God knows what is going to happen and he's in control of it, not you. Right? Pharaoh, to his credit, listens. I, I can speak to you, perhaps if you're not a Christian here this morning, I, I don't know where you sit with Jesus or with the Christian faith. Um, Pharaoh is a good example, perhaps, of a guy who didn't agree with this, but he respected it, and we don't know what his motives were, but he, he believed Joseph. Often, maybe that's a good thing to do. There would be a Pharaoh to come later who wouldn't do that at all. Next time, it's Moses and the Pharaoh and the plagues and the battle, right, that exists between God and Pharaoh. That's a side point. Regardless, what I want to lift out to you, church, here is that we see Joseph speaking directly to the face of Pharaoh with incredible confidence. Do you think you could do that? Have you gone into situations where you were afraid and intimidated? I remember when I was young, I think I still remember it now, intimidated to speak about God in front of my friends. Still intimidated to speak about God in front of people. Unless it's in church where it's safe, Right? Often I'm afraid, not just because I'm intimidated, but I'm, and you are afraid because of the problems that life presents to us, issues in parenting. I'm afraid of, in the face of sickness. I'm afraid in the face of death. I'm afraid in the face of COVID. I'm afraid of the future of of. of of our church, not that there's anything to be worried about, but I've got a lot of decisions to make. I'm afraid of the future of my family. <laughs> we cower, right? We cower when we're presented by situations and scenarios of people that intimidate us, that fill us with fear. <laughs> Here's the question. How did Joseph do this? How does he walk into that place of fear and with such confidence stare the incarnation of fear 
in the eye and said, God will do what God has said he will do. I'll tell you how he did it. Joseph knew that God is greater than Pharaoh. That's it, really. Joseph knew that God is greater than Pharaoh. Friend, can I ask you this morning, do you believe that God is greater than what you are afraid of? Do you believe that? Do you believe that the hand of God that flung planets and stars into space is also the hand on the palm of which your name is written as his child? See, the answer to your fear, the answer to to my fear in life is not to minimise the sizes of our problems. They are big. They truly are big, but the answer is to maximise our awe of the greatness of God. (laughs) Joseph can stand before the greatest of people on planet Earth of his time and say, God is greater. I know it. (laughs) And because I know it, I can speak to you with confidence, right? I do not have to be afraid. So church, the answer to, to you this morning, if, 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 if this is your headspace, I'm afraid. Can I urge you to maximise and grow your understanding of the greatness of God? That's the answer to your problem, right? Here's what Bible says. No, it's not in there. Psalm 145 verse 5 says this, they speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty and I will meditate on your wonderful works. I will fill my mind with the truths of how great you are. That's the purpose of prayer, by the way. That's the main purpose of prayer is to fill your mind with how great your God is. You cannot and you will not look on your problems the same way. You will not be as afraid as you are. I will meditate on your wonderful works day and night. All right, that's the first point. It's the longest point of this sermon. Joseph knew. He knew that God is greater than Pharaoh. Second point is much shorter, really. There's a view among Christians that because God is sovereign, because God has all things under control, right, and he's going to do what he wants to do anyway, and nothing's going to change that, and nothing's going to stop that, I don't have to do anything. (laughs) I can't be bothered, right? God's in control, and if you don't believe in God, you might believe someone else or something else is in control, but certainly there is this sort of view that that the sovereignty of God, the fact that he determines everything and he makes everything happen and we cannot change his mind, that we don't matter and what we do don't matter. Not we don't matter, what we do don't matter. Listen to this. Joseph says to Pharaoh bravely, God is going to do what he's going to do. Nothing is going to change that. And then we get this. So now, let Pharaoh take action. Get to it. 
because you know what God is going to do. Move. (laughs) Store up grain. Bring in the harvest. Be clever. Plan for the future because you know what God is going to do. Christians, you know what God is doing. You know history will wrap up. You know Christ is coming again. You know he's in full control of the future. So get going. We gather in the harvest. I'm talking about evangelism. I'm talking about mission. I'm saying, yes. Because we know what God is doing, we're busy. We work, right? And we can do so with a great sense of confidence because we know in whose plans and purposes and will we are functioning. That's the second point. God's sovereignty, his, his unstoppable purposes make, uh, give us far more reason to act than not to act. It, it certainly cannot lead us to a life where we say, I can't be bothered. It doesn't matter. All right, last point. Interesting to notice that life changes completely for Joseph. Did you pick that in the last bit that Betsy read to us? Joseph goes from the pits to the pinnacle, man. First in Pharaoh's house as a slave, then in the dungeon and the prison, and now we read this from, from Pharaoh, and this is, this is extreme. All my people, Pharaoh says, will do as you say. Only on the throne will I be greater than you. Pharaoh took the ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. That ring was a signet ring. You know the old style, the, the way kings work, basically. If you can put that ring on a document, it's ironclad. It will get done. Look how much power Pharaoh gives him. He takes the ring from his finger. There's not more than one of these. That's the only one. (laughs) Puts it on Joseph's finger. It's enormous. The the, the power that he wields is is beyond comprehension. He dresses him in clothes of fine cloth. He put a gold chain around his neck. He had him travel in his second wagon of honor. Whenever people see Joseph, they have to bow down. He gives him... The name Zephanath Paneah, which means uh, God speaks. Uh, and then he gives him a wife, Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, who is the relig- religious leader of On. On is, is sun worship. It's, it's, it's worshipping probably the, the biggest religion in Egypt at the time was worshipping the sun god who was called On. The priest um, is an aristocratic family. The pharaohs often chose their wives from this family's line. And so the fact that Pharaoh gives Joseph one of gives one of Joseph these one of these women says a huge deal about the status of Joseph. He he gets a, a, a king's wedding out of this, right? Here's the thing. Here's what you should get. Pharaoh is deliberately trying to Egyptianize Joseph. He wants him to be an Egyptian. Right? Clothing was Egyptian. His name got changed to be Egyptian. His language was Egyptian. His father-in-law was the leading Egyptian sun worshipper. His wife was Egyptian. Here's what it all is supposed to have led to from Pharaoh's perspective. Joseph's soul was in greater peril than at any other time in his short life. 
the chance for Joseph to be destroyed as a person was higher now than it ever has been in this story. Think about this story. This guy has been sold as a slave. Right? He's been done in in his master's household. He spent time in prison. And yet none of that were as threatening to him and to his life as this. Why? Puritan Cotton Mather tells us, religion begat prosperity and the daughter devoured the mother. Isn't that a picture of our Western civilization? We're rich, we're affluent, we're powerful, we forget God. We don't need God. We thank God quite often in our prayers that we live in a place where we're free to worship Him. We don't pray enough that God would save us from the place where we live, which more than any other place on earth, by the way, would destroy us as people in our wealth, (laughs) in the Egypt-like environment in which we live, in which the culture is threatening to Egyptianize you, right? It's true. And so the question is massive for Joseph and for you and for me. Will it work? Will Joseph forget God? Now at the greatest test of his life, will you forget God? Well, I forget God, right? When it goes well with me. Not Joseph. <laughs> a bit buried in here, but I think it was a huge twist to those who really try, try to change him. Later on in the chapter, it finishes like this. Two sons were born to Joseph before the years without food came. The religious leader of Ivan gave birth to them. What will he name them? Surely with the pressures of the aristocratic family and the entire might of the Egyptian empire that rests on his shoulders, surely he would pay tribute to them by saying, my sons need to be Egyptian. I have to name my son and my daughter here. I'm South African and I thought, well, I should go for names that go down well in Australia, right? I'm going to call them the names that (laughs) Etienne or any of those strange to pronounce hard names that they have to spell every time they order pizza or... Talk to someone, it's, you know, just let him blend in. Maybe I capitulated. Don't know. But Joseph, what's he going to do? What's he going to name his sons, right? Hebrew names. After so many years of prosperity, with the threat of wealth, success, power, and Manasseh. God has made me forget all my trouble and those of my father's house. Ephraim, God has given me children in the land of my suffering. (laughs) He does not forget God, right? It's a powerful statement, not to us on the surface, but, but get the context, huge. God is the one who is most important to me is what Joseph is saying. And that's the third point. You know, Joseph knew that God is better than Egypt. Joseph knew that the God, even the God who led him through slavery and imprisonment, is better than Egypt. 
Nothing corrupted that. Nothing changed that. Church, here's the question. Can you and I be the same? Will our desire for prosperity, success or power devour us? Is what Egypt has to offer us more attractive than God? Are we more in love with our careers, our dreams, our investments, our holiday plans, our Centrelink payments, our expectations of our government? doesn't matter what it is. None of these are inherently wrong. But is God still better to us than any of these things? That's the question. Joseph not only knew that God is greater than Egypt, he knew that God is better than Egypt. And he held on. All right, let me finish. Here's what I told you so far. Told you we shouldn't be afraid of anything. Told you that we should be working hard, we should faithfully serve the purposes of God for our life, even though God is sovereign. I told you we should love God more than anything else and see him as better than anything else. And you might say to me, good sermon, thanks. And I can pray. We can have coffee. No morning tea, just coffee. And yet, I would have done you a disservice. I would have robbed you of what I think is the greatest thing of this whole chapter. You see, the truth is that I am lazy. I can't be bothered. The truth is, I do love Egypt more than I love God. The truth is, I do fear Egypt more than I stand in the awe of the greatness of God. And yet, yet, here's the rub, church, despite all my imperfections, despite all your imperfections, God gave me a Judah. You remember Judah? We're Judah, right? God gave me and you a Joseph. A Joseph who, knowing the sovereign plans and will and purposes of God, was willing to be born as a human. Willing to live as a human willing to die on a cross as a human. He took the action, right? A, a Joseph who, whose love for God was so deep, so committed that after 40 days of temptation in the Judean desert at the point of death, would look at Satan and say, no, God is better. A Joseph who would stand in the Oval Office of Golgotha and unflinchingly look Satan in the eye, look death in the eye and say, my God is greater. He, he will come for me. I will be raised. There will be life. That's who we're meant to see. That's what this is all about. And the truth is that if you believe in it and as you come to that Joseph 
as these people are going to come to that Joseph in the next few chapters in Genesis, your experience will be the same as theirs. That Joseph is or has said to you, come, be part of the family. Be blessed. That is what we get again from Joseph. That is the truth. The good news of Christianity is, strictly speaking, not that you should be like Joseph. That's bad news. You aren't and you can't. The good news is that God has become like Joseph for you in your place that you may be blessed. And yes, he's going to change you. Yes, he's going to shape you. Yes, he's going to help you to be less afraid, to be more active and to resist temptation better. But we do so as children of Jesus, not on our own. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word again. Thank you for Joseph. Thank you for his remarkable example. And I pray that we, like we'll see in the next few weeks, would come to marvel at your greatness and meditate on your works, particularly your work of the cross that you would bring us into your family, that you would send someone who knows your greatness, who perfectly believed in it, who resisted all temptation, and who worked the hardest for our blessing and our well-being. We thank you for Jesus. Amen. Thank you, John.